Chapters 33 and 34 of The Way of All Flesh. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rhonda Fetterman. The Way of All Flesh by Samuel Butler. Chapter 33. Next day Miss Pontifex returned to town, with her thoughts full of her nephew, and how she could best be of use to him. It appeared to her that to do him any real service she must devote herself almost entirely to him. She must, in fact, give up living in London, at any rate for a long time, and live at Roughborough where she could see him continually. This was a serious undertaking. She had lived in London for the last twelve years, and naturally disliked the prospect of a small country town such as Roughborough. Was it a prudent thing to attempt so much? Must not people take their chances in this world? Can anyone do much for anyone else, unless by making a will in his favor, and dying then and there? Should not each look after his own happiness? And will not the world be best carried on if every one minds his own business, and leaves other people to mind theirs? Life is not a donkey race in which every one is to ride his neighbor's donkey, and the last is to win and the psalmist long since formulated a common experience when he declared that no man may deliver his brother, nor make agreement unto God for him, for it cost more to redeem their souls, so that he must let that alone for ever. All these excellent reasons for letting her nephew alone occurred to her, and many more, but against them there pleaded a woman's love for children and her desire to find someone among the younger branches of her own family to whom she could become warmly attached, and whom she could attach warmly to herself. Over and above this she wanted someone to leave her money to. She was not going to leave it to people about whom she knew very little, merely because they happened to be sons and daughters of brothers and sisters whom she had never liked. She knew the power and value of money exceedingly well, and how many lovable people suffer and die yearly for the want of it. She was little likely to leave it without being satisfied that her legatees were square, lovable, and more or less hard up. She wanted those to have it who would be most likely to use it genially and sensibly, and whom it would thus be likely to make most happy. If she could find one such among her nephews and nieces, so much the better. It was worth taking a great deal of pains to see whether she could or could not, but if she failed she must find an heir who was not related to her by blood. Of course, she said to me more than once, I shall make a mess of it. I shall choose some nice-looking, well-dressed screw with gentlemanly manners which will take me in, and he will go and paint academy pictures, or write for the times, or do something just as horrid the moment the breath is out of my body. As yet, however, she had made no will at all, and this was one of the few things that troubled her. I believe she would have left most of her money to me if I had not stopped her. My father left me abundantly well off, and my mode of life has always been simple, so that I have never known uneasiness about money. Moreover, I was especially anxious that there should be no occasion given for ill-natured talk. She knew well, therefore, that her leaving her money to me would be of all things the most likely to weaken the ties that existed between us. 
provided that I was aware of it, but I did not mind her talking about whom she should make her heir, so long as it was well understood that I was not to be the person. Ernest had satisfied her as having enough in him to tempt her strongly to take him up. But it was not till after many days' reflection that she gravitated toward actually doing so, with all the break in her daily ways that this would entail. At least she said it took her some days, and certainly it appeared to do so, but from the moment she had begun to broach the subject I had guessed how things were going to end. It was now arranged she should take a house at Roughborough, and go and live there for a couple of years. As a compromise, however, to meet some of my objections, it was also arranged that she should keep her rooms in Gower Street, and come to town for a week once in each month. Of course also she would leave Roughborough for the greater part of the holidays. After two years the thing was to come to an end, unless it proved a great success. She should by that time, at any rate, have made up her mind what the boy's character was, and would then act as circumstances might determine. The pretext she put forward ostensibly was that her doctor said she ought to be a year or two in the country after so many years of London life, and it recommended Roughborough on account of the purity of its air and its easy access to and from London, for by this time the railway had reached it. She was anxious not to give her brother and sister any right to complain, if on seeing more of her nephew she found she could not get on with him, and she was also anxious not to raise false hopes of any kind in the boy's own mind. Having settled on how everything was to be, she wrote to Theobald and said she meant to take a house in Roughborough from the Michaelmas, then approaching, and mentioned, as though casually, that one of the attractions of the place would be that her nephew was at school there, and she should hope to see more of him than she had done hitherto. Theobald and Christina knew how dearly Alethea loved London, and thought it very odd that she should want to go and live at Roughborough, but they did not suspect that she was going there solely on her nephew's account, much less that she had thought of making Ernest her heir. If they had guessed this, they would have been so jealous that I half believe that they would have asked her to go and live somewhere else. Alethea, however, was two or three years younger than Theobald. She was still some years short of fifty, and might very well live to eighty-five or ninety. Her money, therefore, was not worth taking much trouble about, and her brother and sister-in-law had dismissed it, so to speak, from their minds with costs, assuming, however, that if anything did happen to her while they were still alive, the money would, as a matter of course, come to them. The prospect of Alethea seeing much of Ernest was a serious matter. Christina smelt mischief from afar, as indeed she often did. Alethea was worldly, as worldly, that is to say, as a sister of Theobald's could be. In her letter to Theobald she had said she knew how much of his and Christina's thoughts were taken up with anxiety for the boy's welfare. Alethea had thought this handsome enough, but Christina had wanted something better and stronger. "'How can she know how much we think of our darling?' she had exclaimed when Theobald showed her his sister's letter. I think, my dear, Alethea would understand these things better if she had children of her own. The least that would have satisfied Christina was to have been told that there never yet had been any parents comparable to Theobald and herself. 
she did not feel easy that an alliance of some kind would not grow up between aunt and nephew, and neither she nor Theobald wanted Ernest to have any allies. Joey and Charlotte were quite as many allies as were good for him. After all, however, if Alethea chose to go and live at Roughborough, they could not well stop her, and must make the best of it. In a few weeks' time Alethea did choose to go and live at Roughborough. A house was found with a field and a nice little garden which suited her very well. At any rate, she said to herself, I will have fresh eggs and flowers. She even considered the question of keeping a cow, but in the end decided not to do so. She furnished her house throughout anew, taking nothing whatever from her establishment in Gower Street. And by Michaelmas, for the house was empty when she took it, she was settled comfortably, and had begun to make herself at home. One of Miss Pontifex's first moves was to ask a dozen of the smartest and most gentlemanly boys to breakfast with her. From her seat in church she could see the faces of the upper-form boys, and soon made up her mind which of them it would be best to cultivate. Miss Pontifex, sitting opposite the boys in church, and reckoning them up with her keen eyes from under her veil, by all a woman's criteria, came to a truer conclusion about the greater number of those she scrutinized than even Dr. Skinner had done. She fell in love with one boy from seeing him put on his gloves. Miss Pontifex, as I have said, got hold of some of these youngsters through earnest, and fed them well. No boy can resist being fed well by a good-natured and still handsome woman. Boys are very like nice dogs in this respect. Give them a bone, and they will like you at once. Alethea employed every other little artifice which she thought likely to win their allegiance to herself, and through this their countenance for her nephew. She found the football club in a slight money difficulty, and at once gave half a sovereign toward its removal. The boys had no chance against her. She shot them down one after another as easily as though they had been roosting pheasants. Nor did she escape scathless herself, for as she wrote to me, she quite lost her heart to half a dozen of them. How much nicer they are, she said, and how much more they know than those who profess to teach them. I believe it has been lately maintained that it is the young and fair who are the truly old and truly experienced, inasmuch as it is they who alone have a living memory to guide them. The whole charm, it has been said, of youth lies in its advantage over age in respect of experience, and when this has for some reason failed or been misapplied, the charm is broken. When we say that we are getting old, we should say rather that we are getting new or young, and are suffering from inexperience, trying to do things which we have never done before, and failing worse and worse till in the end we are landed in the utter impotence of death. Miss Pontifex died many a long year before the above passage was written, but she had arrived independently at much the same conclusion. She first, therefore, squared the boys. Dr. Skinner was even more easily dealt with. He and Mrs. Skinner called, as a matter of course, as soon as Miss Pontifex was settled. She fooled him to the top of his bent, and obtained the promise of a manuscript of one of his minor poems for Dr. Skinner had the reputation of being quite one of our most facile and elegant minor poets, on the occasion of his first visit. 
The other masters and masters' wives were not forgotten. Alethea laid herself out to please, as indeed she did wherever she went, and if any woman lays herself out to do this, she generally succeeds. CHAPTER Thirty Four. Miss Pontifex soon found out that Ernest did not like games, but she saw also that he could hardly be expected to like them. He was perfectly well-shaped, but unusually devoid of physical strength. He got a fair share of this in after-life, but it came much later with him than with other boys, and at the time of which I am writing he was a mere little skeleton. He wanted something to develop his arms and chest without knocking him about as much as the school games did. To supply this want by some means which should add also to his pleasure was Alethea's first anxiety. Rowing would have answered every purpose, but unfortunately there was no river at Roughborough. Whatever it was to be, it must be something which he should like as much as other boys liked cricket or football and he must think the wish for it to have come originally from himself. It was not very easy to find anything that would do, but ere long it occurred to her that she might enlist his love of music on her side, and asked him one day when he was spending a half-holiday at her house whether he would like her to buy an organ for him to play on. Of course the boy said yes. Then she told him about her grandfather and the organs he had built. It had never entered into his head that he could make one, but when he gathered from what his aunt had said that this was not out of the question, he rose as eagerly to the bait as she could have desired, and wanted to begin learning to saw and plane so that he might make the wood pipes at once. Miss Pontifex did not see how she could have hit upon anything more suitable, and she liked the idea that he would incidentally get a knowledge of carpentering for she was impressed, perhaps foolishly, with the wisdom of the German custom which gives every boy a handicraft of some sort. Writing to me on this matter, she said, Professions are all very well for those who have connection and interest as well as capital, but otherwise they are white elephants. How many men do not you and I know who have talent, assiduity, excellent good taste, straightforwardness, every quality in fact which should command success and yet who go on from year to year waiting and hoping against hope for the work which never comes how indeed is it likely to come unless to those who either are born with interest or who marry in order to get it Ernest's father and mother have no interest and if they had they would not use it i suppose they will make him a clergyman or try to do so perhaps it is the best thing to do with him for he could buy a living with the money his grandfather left him, but there is no knowing what the boy will think of it when the time comes, and for aught we know he may insist on going to the backwoods of America, as so many other young men are doing now. But anyway, he would like making an organ, and this could do him no harm, so the sooner he began, the better. Alethea thought it would save trouble in the end if she told her brother and sister-in-law of this scheme, I do not suppose, she wrote, that Dr. Skinner will approve very cordially of my attempt to introduce organ-building into the curriculum of Roughborough, but I will see what I can do with him, for I have set my heart on owning an organ built by Ernest's own hands, which he may play on as much as he likes, while it remains in my house, 
and which I will lend him permanently as soon as he gets one of his own, but which is to be my property for the present, inasmuch as I mean to pay for it. This was put in to make it plain to Theobald and Christina that they should not be out of pocket in the matter. If Alethea had been as poor as the Mrs. Allaby, the reader may guess what Ernest's papa and mamma would have said to this proposal. But then, if she had been as poor as they, she would never have made it. They did not like Ernest getting more and more into his aunt's good books. Still it was perhaps better that he should do so than that she should be driven back upon the John Pontifexes. The only thing, said Theobald, which made him hesitate, was that the boy might be thrown with low associates later on if he were to be encouraged in his taste for music, a taste which Theobald had always disliked. He had observed with regret that Ernest had ere now shown rather a hankering after low company, and he might make acquaintance with those who would corrupt his innocence. Christina shuddered at this, but when they had aired their scruples sufficiently, they felt and when people begin to feel, they are invariably going to take what they believe to be the more worldly course, that to oppose Alethea's proposal would be injuring their son's prospects more than was right. So they consented, but not too graciously. After a time, however, Christina got used to the idea, and then considerations occurred to her which made her throw herself into it with characteristic ardor. If Miss Pontifex had been a railway stock, she might have been said to have been buoyant in the Battersby market for some days. Buoyant for long together she could never be. Still, for a time, there really was an upward movement. Christina's mind wandered to the organ itself. She seemed to have made it with her own hands. There would be no other in England to compare with it for combined sweetness and power. She already heard the famous Dr. Walmisley of Cambridge mistaking it for a Father Smith. It would come, no doubt, in reality to Battersby Church, which wanted an organ, for it must be all nonsense about Alethea's wishing to keep it, and Ernest would not have a house of his own for ever so many years, and they could never have it at the rectory. Oh, no, Battersby Church was the only proper place for it. Of course they would have a grand opening, and the bishop would come down, and perhaps young Figgins might be on a visit to them. She must ask Ernest if young Figgins had yet left Roughborough. He might even persuade his grandfather, Lord Lonsford, to be present. Lord Lonsford and the bishop and everyone else would then compliment her and Dr. Wesley or Dr. Walmisley, who should preside, it did not much matter which would say to her, My dear Mrs. Pontifex, I never yet played upon so remarkable an instrument. Then she would give him one of her very sweetest smiles, and say she feared he was flattering her, on which he would rejoin with some pleasant little trifle about remarkable men, the remarkable man being for the moment earnest, having invariably had remarkable women for their mothers, and so on, and so on. The advantage of doing one's praising for oneself is that one can lay it on so thick and exactly in the right places. Theobald wrote Ernest a short and surly letter apropos of his aunt's intentions in this matter. I will not commit myself, he said, to an opinion whether anything will come of it. This will depend entirely upon your own exertions. 
you have had singular advantages hitherto, and your kind aunt is showing every desire to befriend you. But you must give greater proof of stability and steadiness of character than you have given yet, if this organ matter is not to prove in the end to be only one disappointment the more. I must insist on two things. Firstly, that this new iron in the fire does not distract your attention from your Latin and Greek. They aren't mine, thought Ernest, and never have been. And secondly, that you bring no smell of glue or shavings into the house here, if you make any part of the organ during your holidays. Ernest was still too young to know how unpleasant a letter he was receiving. He believed the innuendos contained in it to be perfectly just. He knew he was sadly deficient in perseverance. He liked some things for a little while, and then found he did not like them any more, and this was as bad as anything well could be. His father's letter gave him one of his many fits of melancholy over his own worthlessness, but the thought of the organ consoled him and he felt sure that here at any rate was something to which he could apply himself steadily without growing tired of it. It was settled that the organ was not to be begun before the Christmas holidays were over, and that till then Ernest should do a little plain carpentering, so as to get to know how to use his tools. Miss Pontifex had a carpenter's bench set up in the outhouse upon her own premises, and made terms with the most respectable carpenter in Roughborough by which one of his men was to come for a couple of hours twice a week and set Ernest on the right way. Then she discovered she wanted this or that simple piece of work done, and gave the boy a commission to do it, paying him handsomely, as well as finding him in tools and materials. She never gave him a syllable of good advice or talked to him about everything's depending on his own exertions, but she kissed him often and would come into the workshop and act the part of one who took an interest in what was being done so cleverly as ere long to become really interested. What boy would not take kindly to almost anything with such assistance? All boys like making things. The exercise of sawing, planing, and hammering proved exactly what his aunt had wanted to find. Something that should exercise, but not too much, and at the same time amuse him. When Ernest's sallow face was flushed with his work, and his eyes were sparkling with pleasure, he looked quite a different boy from the one his aunt had taken in hand only a few months earlier. His inner self never told him that this was humbug, as it did about Latin and Greek. Making stools and drawers was worth living for, and after Christmas there loomed the organ, which was scarcely ever absent from his mind. His aunt let him invite his friends, encouraging him to bring those whom her quick sense told her were the most desirable. She smartened him up also in his personal appearance, always without preaching to him. Indeed, she worked wonders during the short time that was allowed her, and if her life had been spared, I cannot think that my hero would have come under the shadow of that cloud which cast so heavy a gloom over his younger manhood. But unfortunately for him, his gleam of sunshine was too hot and too brilliant to last, and he had many a storm yet to weather before he became fairly happy. For the present, however, he was supremely so, and his aunt was happy and grateful for his happiness, 
the improvement she saw in him and his unrepressed affection for herself. She became fonder of him from day to day, in spite of his many faults and almost incredible foolishnesses. It was perhaps on account of these very things that she saw how much he had need of her, but at any rate from whatever the cause, she became strengthened in her determination to be to him in the place of parents, and to find in him a son rather than a nephew. But still she made no will. End of chapter 34 Recording by Rhonda Fetterman